right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. A fun, uh, fun episode today with Bobby Weed, longtime golf course architect, worked for Pete Dye for many, many years. We talk a lot about what he learned from Pete Dye. We nerd out a little bit on the specifics of building golf courses, but also talk about uh, how things are trending in the industry, how things are trending in the game, uh, what he's been working on lately, what it's like to renovate courses, build your own courses. He worked uh, for the TPC Network for a long time, uh, building and renovating a lot of those golf courses. So. Uh, talk some about Bryson and what he's doing, and uh, gosh, I really honestly feel like we were just getting warmed up. He had a, he had a meeting he needed to get to, or else we would have gone for a lot longer. But that usually means somebody's coming back for a part two. So, uh, if you're listening to this episode, that means that episode three of season six of Taurus Sauce, our Oregon season, is live on our YouTube channel. This season is proudly presented by our friends at Precision Pro Golf. Makers of premium laser rangefinders that help golfers swing with confidence and hit more greens. Everyone needs a rangefinder, and not everyone wants to break the bank for one. So why wouldn't you get yourself a Precision Pro rangefinder? Keep listening, and I'll tell you which one to get. Uh, throughout this season of Taurus Sauce, you're gonna, we're going to guide you across the Beaver State, showing you the beauty and history that is Oregon golf. This week's episode is about... The foundation of Bandon Dunes and the whole story with Mike Kaiser, and I don't want to give away too much. It's one of my favorite episodes we've ever done, and there's very little golf that is actually played in this episode. So on every course that you'll find throughout the season during in the great state of Oregon, it was the Precision Pro NX9 slope range finder that guided us to the green. It is a crystal clear picture through the lens of this thing. Gives you a yardage fast, easy. It has a magnetic feature that you know sticks right to the side of your cart. If you're in a cart, every one of us uses these things. We all trust Precision Pro to help us pick the right club and swing with confidence. And so use promo code No Laying Up to get twenty dollars off the NX9 Slope Rangefinder. That's No Laying Up to get twenty dollars off the Precision Pro NX9 Slope Rangefinder. So go to PrecisionProGolf.com. Use promo code No Laying Up at checkout. Swing with confidence. Hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Now let's get to Bobby Wheat. All right, speaking to to all different kinds of golf fans here, wh- wh- how would you describe where you fit in in the in the golf architecture landscape currently? I th- I know that at least our listeners are very familiar with Tom Doak, Gil Hance, uh, Bill Core, and Ben Crenshaw. They've all been guests on this podcast before. David McClay Kid, how would you describe how you fit into the landscape? Well, you got a good group of guys that you just named, <laughs> and uh, I'm certainly a number of them are my contemporaries. So I've been in the business a long time. I guess I'm getting to be one of the older guys in the business. How now. old are you? I'm 65, so uh, I'm, I'm working on about 40, 40 plus years of playing in the dirt. <laughs> so where, how would you, I guess, either compare and contrast your golf courses, your style with some of those guys? How would you describe how you fit it, how you fit into that? I probably fall out of the Pete Dye tree without question. Pete was my mentor. Just really, really fortunate to uh, to gain so much experience with uh, with Pete, kind of taking me under his wing. Really, the greatest um, modern day architect, uh, most creative. Learned so much from him, um, starting with a great work ethic. He had a tremendous work ethic, and not ever afraid to make changes and told me a long time ago that uh, you show me a golf course built by a set of plans, I'll show you a bad golf course. <laughs> it happens in the field. In fact, all of those guys you mentioned, I think, probably spend a lot of time in the field as well. So um, uh, I've kind of patterned my career and my business similar to what Pete did. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time on site. I limit my project base. I kind of build it in the field while we do a routing plan and we have a general concept and idea. So much of it happens in the field. Who else is on the tree? Who did you kind of work with during your time with Pete? It's it's a very big tree. I know he has such – I think a lot of people don't fully understand the reach Pete has into modern golf architecture, not even the courses that he touched, but all the people that came from him and and learned from him and learned the principles from him. So could you kind of, kind of set the scene for the listeners as to what that tree and that uh, influence looks like? Well, his uh, his youngest son, PB, and I are the same age, so we uh, we kind of came along at the same time. Uh, Lee Schmidt, actually, um, Tom, I gave Tom his first job up in Hilton Head at Long Cove. Uh, Brian Curley worked with um, with Pete a little bit when he was with Landmark Land, 
you know, the list just goes on and on and on. But as great an architect as Pete was, I think to his legacy will also be all the folks that he influenced, uh, not only architects, but golf course superintendents, construction personnel. Uh, there's so many other folks that are part of our business. Pete influenced so many people until um, I think an equal component of his legacy will be all of those folks that he touched and, and brought into this business uh, along with his great golf courses. I kind of want to do a little exercise with you in that I don't think I would be a very good golf course architect. I, I have an appreciation for it. I think I understand it pretty well. I, I, I know what I like, what I don't like, but I don't think I could do it. So like if, if I went out tomorrow playing in the dirt, let's say somewhere in Ponte Vedra, look at the, where the old Oak Bridge was, there's some grass there that's still there uh, that, that uh, I think is going to be some houses. But if I was to design a golf hole or a golf, couple golf holes, what mistakes would somebody off the street make? Like, I couldn't tell you how to drain water, how to do any of that. So I kind of want to set the scene for, like, the just the, the things that people don't think about when it comes to golf course management and building. I think everybody's a bit of an armchair architect, first and foremost, and they all have ideas, and typically they all stem from um, their own particular game more than anything else. Some of the pitfalls probably would be uh, not paying attention to any drainage, uh, and drainage is probably the foremost, most important item. Uh, to begin with and end with. And it's honest. something that people don't think about when they're playing the golf course. Yeah, it, it it starts with drainage, bottom line. Pete told me that early on and taught me that early on, that it's drainage, drainage, drainage. If it doesn't drain, it doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't matter if the turf is eighth of an inch underwater or eight feet underwater. It doesn't matter. Wet is wet. Drainage is always going to be a key component. <laughs> You know, width of the golf holes, uh, I think I've always felt like the wider corridor you have, the better off you are. People tend to want to leave a lot of trees in there. You'd probably go out and fall in love with a couple of trees and leave the trees in, but you don't really build a golf hole around trees. Uh, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna check out just like everyone else. So uh, uh, you'd probably fall into that trap as well. And then you'd probably design the golf hole to fit your game, if you hit it, if you hit it left or right, you're going to favor um, strategy uh, that's going to help you in that respect. You probably build a green with either way too much contour, crazy contours um, that nobody else could play or finish, <laughs> or build something really flat. But I mean, every hole, every hole fits somebody's eye, and every golf hole, you know, somebody's going to like. There's a lot of strategy that goes into it from start to finish, and uh, the routing is always going to be one of the most important things. I mean, what you just explained, you're actually renovating. You're taking an existing piece of ground that had some golf holes on it and refashioning another golf hole. So um, that's that's renovation, which is completely different from, from new construction in so many ways because on renovations, you have the, the beauty and the benefit of find, seeing what's wrong what doesn't work, what you don't like, and uh, and making all of that good on a blank canvas. You're starting from scratch, so you get to route the golf course and space it out, and uh, uh, it's a lot different, a lot of considerations to take into play when, when you're considering a brand-new golf course versus a renovation. So when it comes to a renovation, and I'm going to ask this besides the obvious, uh, we know with a the renovation, there's a golf course there and you're updating it in a lot of ways versus original design. You're starting from scratch. What, what compare and contrast what those jobs are like in, in a way of, uh, how, how, how am I asking this? Besides the obvious things that are, that are different between the two, what are some things do you have to consider? On a renovation, you certainly want to be, you certainly want to be a good listener. You want to understand the attributes and the uh, and the items that are really issues that are creating a renovation job, uh, and typically that's um, you know renovation golf course typically is one that has fallen fallen out of favor. Uh, it's not competitive in the marketplace. It needs to be updated from a drainage standpoint, uh, from an irrigation, and more often than not, grassing. Um, so those are some of the key components that you would consider 
on a renovation. And also, uh, there probably been a lot of trees planted on a golf course. It depends on how old it is. So um, a lot of factors go in. But um, it's, it's fairly easy to go around and see and maybe even play a renovation golf course and get a feel for it and then be a good listener as to who your client is, what they're looking for, and how they want to change. But um, as opposed to a new golf course, I think on a new golf course, one of the very first questions you want to ask your client is, who's playing the golf course? Who am I building the golf course for? And who's going to be playing the golf course? I think that's a fundamental question that uh, you have to fully understand on the very front end. And then what are you trying to build? Um, you know, is it a public golf course, private? Is it a tournament golf course? All of those factors have to weigh in. And then you kind of just go from there and, you know, determine your access points and uh, understand the topography. And uh, one of the first questions I always want to know and, and ask is, where's the outfall? How's the water getting off the property? Uh, where is our outfall? And then understand all the constraints as far as maybe wetlands. Uh, obviously, here in Florida, we would be concerned with with low-lying areas or wetlands uh, and any other site constraints that you have. Well, let's go through one of these that you've done somewhat recently, which is uh, the Grove 23, Michael Jordan's golf course. First of all, what's it like working with Michael Jordan? How did you guys get put in touch? How did he land on on you to build the golf course? And, uh, and then kind of I'd like to get into some of the specifics about that golf course. He interviewed a number of folks, and he was a member at Medalist, and we redid Medalist a few years ago, and that's where I got to know, um, first introduced to uh, to MJ, and um, just a great guy, just uh, very passionate about the game. Uh, a good day for him is 36 and be done by 3.30. And he doesn't wait for people. No. That's what I understand. No. And uh, he, they typically have a posse of players out there playing, and uh, nobody has more fun. Nobody enjoys it more. And for him to uh, build his own golf course, uh, I saw him. A, I saw him a month ago, and uh, he was on number nine. And he just came over and said, "You know, there's no place in the world I'd rather be than right here." Wow! And that's coming from somebody that could be any place in the world <laughs> that he wants to be. That's got to be a cool feeling. No, it's very cool. We had a great relationship. He said early on, "I want to. I want the best golf course you can build. Uh, um, secondly, I want the best practice facilities." And thirdly, I want a modest clubhouse, and uh, there's no no development on property, and uh, it's strictly golf, 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 golf. And he was very involved, And um, but you know what? I found he was even a better listener. He was absorbing everything, and I gave him, uh, you know, I invited him to come out as often as he wanted to because I wanted him to see the fact that 70, 80% of what he was spending was going to be underneath his golf shoes that he really wouldn't see. To see all the lakes being, being excavated and the field being um, you know, spread out over the golf course, the irrigation system going in, the drainage going in, uh, a lot of big ticket items. It was a great education process for him to see it from start to finish. I remember when we first went out there, we got on a big piece of equipment and uh, and put it up in the air as high as it would go. And we we're like, well, this is kind of going to be the elevation of the clubhouse. And uh, so we started early on showing him everything that we were thinking about and kept him in the loop the whole time. And he was he was really a sponge along the way. And like I said, was a great listener. Really enjoyed coming out, seeing the progress. Um, you know, was gung ho, coaching, coach like almost, mm. like you know, hey team, let's go, let's go, let's go. It was just a really, really fun experience for not only myself but the entire team that we had down there. Well, I, I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that's about not just because he is who he is, but it's about a dream job for you, right? Because. To the point you were asking about, you know, asking who's going to be playing the golf course and who you're building the golf course for, it seems to me that oftentimes uh, architects are tied to slash answering to the owner or the client or who somebody comes to you and says, I want this kind of thing on this piece of property. And I would guess in a, in a lot of ways that limits limits what you would do. If you, if you owned the land and you were building a golf course that would, you know, could be designed for anyone, you would probably do things differently than a client will sometimes dictate to you. Is that fair to say? But and then MJ seems to be on the end of the spectrum of like trusting you more so to uh, to build something great more so than telling you what to do. That's an interesting question. I think in looking back, some of the 
best, most fun golf courses we've been involved in is working for a client that is very involved, educated and very involved um, throughout the process. Uh, I, th I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, I, I tend to like that. Obviously, um, the better the site, the better the golf course. But at the same time, working for an owner that is informed and knowledgeable ultimately helps the end product turn out even better. I guess where I was going with that wasn't as much as involvement being a bad thing, more so than, I guess, how maybe that's a better way of asking is how often is it kind of dictated to you, like, hey, I want a par 72. Hey, I would like this. Hey, I kind of want this. And how often uh, do you do you feel like you have much more freedom? Where where does it where does you, your usual work fall in that spectrum? Most most clients that we have uh, basically turn it over to us. They entrust us. They basically say you're the you're the expert. I'm trusting you. That's why that's why we hired and retained you. I've had some clients before that said we have to have a par seventy two and almost demanding a par seventy two. And uh, I, I never really fully understood that but um you know we try to let the the land speak to us and uh and the holes kind of shake out you know with the uh with the topo uh, but more often than not um we, we they give us a free reign and at the same time they may have some caveats that they want to uh include that that we'll talk through and discuss but um at the end of the day, we'll uh, we'll always come to terms and come to agreement. You know, I'll put my foot down where I need to, but at the same time, I need to be a good listener as well. Because mm -hmm. where I'm going with that also is, it sounds like from what I understand from the Grove, getting kind of into some of the specifics of those golf holes, it sounds like you're able to do some some fun stuff with some of the holes, some blindish par threes and things that. You know, I, I think that there is a stigma around some of that stuff with with some work you do, and correct me if I'm wrong, in some places that that necessarily wouldn't fly, whereas somewhere like the Grove where you have a lot more, maybe a lot more freedom that you're able to do some some fun things that somewhat break the mold from what you typically see in a golf course. Well, I know early on, MJ was, was going to have a lot of tour pros as members, and um, he wanted the golf course to stand up and test those tour pros. So knowing that on the front end, we had some good data and some good information as far as our features go and uh, where we wanted to place bunkers and hazards and the length of golf holes. Um, we think it's a great match play golf course because we have a lot of half-par golf holes, uh, which I think are probably the best golf holes in golf. Uh, we had a lot of flexibility. We built some really big par threes, but we have a lot of variety. So we we have some par five. We have par threes that are down. We've got one that's probably 150, 155, and then we've got a couple that are up in the 270 to 285 hmm. range. We've got a couple drivable par fours, and then we certainly have par, par fours that are 520, 530. So that's an interesting wrinkle for the Grove that I don't think I really thought of, but I imagine a golf course is very different to lay out holes if you know pros are going to be playing it and if you know pros aren't going to necessarily be playing it. So what are the differences there? How much of a challenge does that introduce to what to what you have ahead of you? Well, I will tell you the range of golfers continues to get wider and wider, broader, so to speak. I mean, the beginner starts at the basement, the expert golfer and the tour pro, that ceiling just keeps getting higher and higher and higher. So therefore, the challenge is even greater today to build a golf course to accommodate such a range of golfers. Knowing that on the front end, we had plenty of room. Our site was about 227 acres, um, somewhat rectangular. So we had plenty of room uh, and space and, you know, basically a treeless site. Uh, we had wide corridors. We had plenty of space uh, in between golf holes. So we built a big, wide golf course, knowing that the wind would be the course's um, uh, biggest ally probably. Uh, in that respect, the features are fairly big overall. But we have a lot of nuances where we tighten things up out there in that 350-yard range, which is where a lot of these tour players are, are today. It's crazy. Um, well, out, well out in front of me and uh, most everybody else. Understanding the tour players as much as I was exposed to them at the PGA Tour and building some, being involved in tournament player club courses and also being involved with Pete, who was constantly trying to stay a step, a step ahead of the tour pros, uh, I think gave us a bit of an angle and understanding on how to how to challenge the tour pros, but at the same time accommodate the average player. Another way we did that down there is we kept most of the greens down on the ground to promote a running game, 
90% of the people that play the game play the game on the ground uh, and need that run-up shot, whereas a tour player is in the air and they don't see bunkers that are front left and front right. And uh, I think that's a pitfall for so many golf courses where bunkers are placed front left and front right, and they really lack the strategic value that really encourages some better shot making from the better player. Uh, but as long as you can run the ball up on the green, you're going to accommodate everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, you want to create pin placements and greens that fall away and, uh, and have, a, have a lean left or lean right. And, and, and it's all about bunker and strategic value from, from really tee to green. So we just have an understanding of that because we've, we've been around so many tour pros for so long and uh, understanding their game and their habits, uh, I think, really, really helped us down there at the Grove. A quick break here to check back in with our friends at BioWave. You heard me talk about BioWave in last week's Rocco Media podcast. That website and link promo code is all going to stay the same. Get to that in a second. This episode is brought to you by our friends at BioWave. This is a TC special. So he told me that uh, in high school, he used to have bad hip flexors, and he would get stem treatment on those, which is basically just shooting electric pulses uh, through the muscle to get it activated, get blood going. These are the take-home version of that. BioWave is a take-home version of that. You can use him on the rhomboids, and he's been using it on his lower back. He's been having a little, little trouble thanks to the lefty golf. So a little bit of detail on BioWave. It is FDA cleared, 100% drug-free. It is pro-athlete proven and trusted. It's for chronic and acute pain and recovery. You can use it to warm up before golf, during a round of golf, for recovery after, uh, treating any kind of acute or chronic pain. And one 30-minute treatment can provide long-lasting pain relief for hours. I'm lucky enough right now. I don't have a lot of pain going on, so I haven't tried this personally, but again, TC is swearing by this. You may have even heard it going off in beeps on on one of the live shows. He uses this sometimes while we are recording. It's made in the USA. It's comfortable, and it feels like a deep tissue massage. You can go to biowave.com slash Rocco. Use promo code NLU for 15% off. Again, that's biowave.com slash Rocco. Use promo code NLU for 15% off. Now let's get back to Bobby Weed. Well, I, I definitely want to unpack a lot of that TPC uh, stuff, and specifically, I want to just talk about how how that challenge and how that gap between the pros and amateurs has changed over the course of your career. But uh, uh, not to get too caught up in, in distance-related stuff uh, off the bat, but I, I'm curious as to – I hear a lot of people say as a – I, I'm I'm very pro bifurcation. Just just I think the the tour pro ball and equipment should not go nearly as far as it does, and there's for a lot of reasons. One of them being, I think a lot of people point to that and say like, we're, why care about the 0.01 percent of golfers? Like, who cares what they're doing? Let me just focus on let's just focus on what 99.9 percent of people are doing. Blah blah blah. But do you see an effect of the top level guys with how far they're hitting it? What kind of a, a trickle-down effect does that have in anything related to your job, anything related to amateur golf that has nothing to do with competition? And, I, and where I'm kind of going with that is like people, you know, the ball goes a little further now for amateur golfers, but that gap is different than it is for the professional golfers, but it makes people play further back tees and people want more yardage in their golf courses a little bit. Do you kind of see where I'm going with that? Yes, the game has been bifurcated forever. Uh, I mean, going back when we had the two-piece ballada ball, that's what the tour players played. The amateurs played a hard ball. It wasn't until the hard ball became so good that everybody went to a hard ball. What other game or what other sport do you know as you age, you can continue to play at a high level or hit the ball longer? It's only now that my swing speed is not increasing that I'm really not hitting the ball any longer. But for, for the, you know, all through my 50s, I would gain distance. I would hit the ball longer with new clubs, new technology, new balls, et cetera. The pros play different clubs than we do. They play different shafts than we do. We're all playing the same balls now because we're, at a, we're playing a hard ball. But if you just look back in the early 90s, uh, you know, before we started hitting metal woods, we were playing with soft balls and hard putters. Now we're playing with hard balls and soft putters. The 460cc driver compared to the persimmon woods that I played growing up, where the sweet spot was a, a dime, you know, now it's bigger than a quarter. There's been so much change, but the change in the technological advances today seem to certainly cater to the swing speed of these guys that are swinging the club so much faster. They're getting the full benefit of all the technological advancements. I remember 
20 plus years ago, 25 years ago when I was working at the PGA Tour, I was on the Golf Channel with Wally Uline, and, um, who was head of Titleist Footjoy, et cetera. And I made a point that to Wally that the most disposable item the game has ever known has been the golf ball. It's changed more than anything. The game was bifurcated back then when they were playing the softball, we were playing the hardball, and the you know they they've always played different clubs, and we play in different shafts and so forth. So uh, this has been an age age old debate um, going back you know since the feather and gutter the um, gutter perch ball. Yeah, uh, and it's going to continue, uh, but I think there I think at some point. People are going to have to realize, the governing bodies are going to have to realize that we're going to have to make some changes. You know, you can see what Bryson is doing to the golf courses today and, and where he's hitting the ball. It'll be really interesting next month at Augusta to see see where he, how he plays and how he hits it there at Augusta. We're all anxious to see that. Yeah, and where I kind of come back to on this is <laughs> there's just – I, there's just no reason for it to go this this far. We don't have the land for it. I mean, you're somebody that that works in in this specific business, and you understand what land costs are and what it costs to build new tees and all this stuff. It just doesn't seem to make sense to to have a ball that goes that far and covers and bypasses so much of a golf course that you're you're setting up hazards along the way. But there's no point in setting up hazards within the first 300 yards for some of these guys. It's just crazy. Yes, you're right. As crazy as it is, I think it's an incredibly exciting time to be a golf course architect because I think we have as much to do with um, changing the game as anybody, challenging the players of today and tomorrow. Uh, I I think it's an incredible, fascinating time today, and uh, I relish that challenge to continue changing our design strategies and creating new strategies and how we play the golf hole, how we play the golf course, and how we get around. You know, you saw you saw at the U.S. Open how they tried to grow the rough up, and and the greens were really rock hard. Um, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of of massive rough. I understand why they do it. I think there are a lot of other ways that we're going to develop uh, in the future to to challenge players at the highest level. But at the same time, you say that's less than one percent, and it's well under. Well, well under one yeah. percent. Um, we can't get caught up in in building golf courses for these for these tour pros. I mean, we need to grow the game. We need more golf courses that we can play in three hours. We need more golf courses that we're not losing more than a sleeve, two sleeves of balls. We need golf courses that you can play maybe loops of three or six or nine at a time. The two things that that society today, golfers have today, that we lack today, uh, would be we have less disposable income for some of these activities, and we have less disposable time because there's so many other family activities. So to be able to get out and play a couple loops of three or six or nine holes, I think is is something we need to focus on a little bit more and trying to speed the game up. Taking four and five hours to play around the golf is sometimes uh, a little too much. And um, we need to be conscious of that. The other good thing is that cost of golf has come down in a lot of areas for municipal golf and uh, public golf access. Um, and during this COVID pandemic, uh, I think golf's become a real shining star. You see more families out. You see more people out walking and playing. And uh, golf rounds are up significantly. Uh, I think that's good for the game. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm curious to unpack some of that as to you kind of lit up there for a little bit when talking about how exciting of a time it was for, so what, what are the ways you would challenge these guys? If, uh, you know, how would you challenge the pros? What are some of the, the creative ways that you think without any changes of any equipment, ways that you would try to get in the way of what Bryson's doing right now, basically? Well, I think, um, uh, players aren't turning the ball quite as much. I think you can um, introduce a little more left to right and right to left golf holes. Dog legs, I think, can be introduced a little bit more. I think you can take the uh, angle turn. Obviously, the angle turns are going out. When I first came into business, uh, I was on the tail end of 750 feet or 250 yards. Pete Dye was the first one to go to 800 feet, 267, and to 850, 283, and then obviously 900 feet at 300 and then beyond. Uh, to the point where bunkers are showing up now at 325 and all the way out to 350. Managing and adjusting those bunkers 
as an architect, I don't think any of us really want to take the driver out of their hand, but I, I think it can be, uh, uh, the fairways can be set up to where it can be a little more demanding off the tee and uh, tighten up those areas down in that 325, 350 range. And um, who's to say you won't find things other than deep rough? Could also be putting some deeper bunkers out there in those areas to make them much more penal in an area that only a few people are going to be. Uh, for the most part, but you got to be careful there because like Pete always said, once you leave the tee, it's all in play. That's the beauty of of par threes. You know where everybody's starting on a par three, whereas on par fours and par fives, it's truly when you leave the tee, it's all in play because uh, players are everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um, uh, and then I think, you know, as far as greens go, um, the speeds today are so much faster. We've had to slow some of the greens greens down as far as slopes to accommodate all the speed. But I think you can really have you can still have some false fronts. You can have some greens that go away from you. Some greens that tilt one way or the other. Um, um, up at Wingfoot, most of those greens are from back to front. Um, so when they're hitting it out of that thick rough, you know they know they could either run the ball up to a lot of those greens or they could, they'd have a bit of a backstop in those greens. Um, it'll be interesting to see these guys at Augusta, um, see these guys play something like Pinehurst where they're a little more uh, turtleback oh, in yeah. some areas. So uh, uh, I think there's great opportunities and also green around approaches, um, green surrounds. I think there's a lot of opportunity to improve upon those areas. And, you know, a couple of the tools that we have, deception and illusions, aren't quite as in play, seems like, because everybody has um, range finders now. But there's still deception and illusions that can be created, you know, with bunkers and uh, dips and lows and, and hollows and, and hills and whatnot. So uh, it's just a combination of things and understanding that. You know, we've become too physical with the game. I think um, the more we can bring back some of that mental agility in our design of golf holes, I think it's going to be it's going to be good too. So uh, we need a we need a better balance of of the physical ability and and uh, and the mental agility. So if we can find a little better balance in there, I think that's going to help us. I I think well to to one point you you got me with the deception on that second hole at uh, the the new ocean course at Ponte Vedra if, if you're in the left side of that fairway I told you that a couple of weeks ago it, it, there is even with the rangefinder it got me a little bit but I think the answer to a lot of that question could you mentioned Pinehurst and immediately I'm like yeah it, it's not a uh, a golf course where bombing it is going to give you that much of an advantage because you're always trying to make the ball stop there <laughs> you know especially right. around the greens. And if you could do that everywhere, I think the challenges, the different ways you could challenge pros is relatively simple. I mean, guys want to know when their golf ball is going to stop. That's the, that's their thing that they fear the most, more so than anything else. But it's just not that possible in, you know, in summer in Detroit to have greens that are, you know, running at a, that are, you know, the ball studding off them and rolling and making the angles matter and all that stuff. It's, it, uh, it, it just, and, and to your point, I, I I agree with a lot of the uh, the challenges that you would put up against the pros, but it also it seems that it is easier addressed with rolling back equipment, so that we don't have to build all new golf courses or renovate all the golf courses to adhere to this one percent. Or we could have this, you know, the kind of rules put in place that just limit how far the one percent hit it, and uh, the game all gets very close, a lot closer together. And I know there's a million more complications with that from a you know, liability standpoint and legal standpoint and all of these things. And it's never as simple as I'm making it out to be. But I, I it seems like that USGA can't come out with this distance report and then stand by and do nothing anymore. No, I think that's right. I think, the, uh, I mean, there's a busload of players right behind Bryson that are either playing the Corn Ferry Tour or coming out of the college ranks. Uh, I saw Matthew Wolf playing uh, in college and you know, saw the distances he was hitting the ball. And, uh, you know, there's just a busload of those of those young guys coming out. And, frankly, they're playing as much or more competitive golf than the tour players. Uh, they've got a pencil in their back pocket almost every week that they're playing. They're really sharp. Uh, it's just amazing how good these players are now. On and they've tour. grown up with this equipment, and that's how they've learned the game, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and now they're working out. They're being more – they're more physical – bigger they're stronger and then on the tour side you know when i was at the pga tour you know they were tucking pins and they were you know four and five paces in off the edges and now they're 
They can be down as little as three paces in. And we were cupping greens at three and four percent, and now we're cupping greens at two and three percent. Significant difference. All that said, I really am excited about you know the future uh, and continuing to grow the game, but also continuing to challenge the best players. Uh, I mean, I think that's uh, that's what really gets our juices going as as designers. Can you talk to me about, I guess, as we go back now to how you ended up with the PGA Tour, what, what that role was? Was someone there before you or kind of how that the genesis of that role and how it evolved over the course of your time there? That was the front end of the tournament player clubs. And um, I was working for Pete in Hilton Head. We had just done a little work at Harbor Town, and I was building a Long Cove club, a private club on Hilton Head with Pete, really my first big job uh, back in 80, 81. Pete was finishing up the Tournament Players Club at Sawgrass, and he would work there and then drive all night and come in to Hilton Head, and we'd be on the job site the next day, and he'd be back and forth. And and then they opened the Players Club at Sawgrass, and they played the first event there, and Jerry Pate won and threw everybody in the water and and all that good stuff. But um, shortly thereafter, we were in the condo one night. I could only hear one side of the conversation, but Dean Beeman called Pete and said, uh, we, we, I have a near mutiny on my hand. We've got to make some changes uh, to this golf course. You know, the golf course was ahead of its time. There's no question about it. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. It embarrassed some of the tour pros, and that's, that's what they don't like. Right. Tour pros don't want to be embarrassed, and uh, they're the best players in the world. And comments and the feedback was, uh, was very mixed. Pete basically said, we're finishing up here in Hilton Head. I've got a, I've got a young man that... I'll send down there, and we'll start making those changes. So um, I came down at the end of 82, uh, prepared the golf course for the 83 event, which I think Hal Sutton won. And then after that, we started making changes to the golf course, and, boy, they didn't stop. Uh, it just, they just kept going. What kind of changes? What needed to be done? We softened the greens. Initially, in concept, the greens were built for four specific pin placements, mm. almost in four quadrants. And the greens were too small, I think, to accommodate those four quadrants because we had a lot of slope in each of those quadrants. So uh, by enlarging and softening those quadrants really eased up the greens. And the lines and the angles of the golf holes really haven't changed. The routing has never changed, and the angles and the lines have not changed that much. They were just softened. They were just softened. And by soften, you mean from a contour perspective, not a soft, like not a firmness slash softness perspective. No, not from a firmness yeah. uh, standpoint, but from a view yeah. looking down the line. Players like to have things they can aim at and hit off and, and turn the ball off of. And our lines were so straight that um, we had to alter some of those. Uh, we altered some bunkers. We altered some of the um, some of the obviously uh, all the greens were rebuilt uh, more than once or twice. It got to the point where Pete once made a comment that he, that we should have ninety holes there, not eighteen, because we built uh, we built <laughs> rebuilt the golf course so much. But you know what, Jack did the same thing. Has done the same thing at Muirfield. Yeah. Muirfield is a great golf course today. Donald Ross did the same thing at Pinehurst Number Two. It's one of the great golf courses today, and the Tournament Players Club at Sawgrass, with all the changes. While I didn't approve, I didn't care for some of the changes. I was doing what I was told, and I think the golf course has evolved into a, a really, a really great golf course today. I always say this about Stadium Course, and I don't even know if it's technically accurate, but that it's classic Pete Dye visual intimidation as far as the fairways come because you stand those fairways and you're like, this is actually pretty wide up here, but from the tee boxes, it feels a little uncomfortable. Is there anything that you learned from Pete, I guess, in, in terms of visual intimidation and how that how that plays a role, even with you know the, the rangefinder era and whatnot, as to how to visually uh, kind of confuse uh, uh, players, even at the top level? That's a good comment. Visual intimidation um, looks harder, plays a little bit easier. 
And um, I think the fairways are a little rounded in terms of kind of folded over where you can't see the true edges of the fairway from the tees, and it makes you feel like it's more narrow. Um, and I, I just was, I always say that to people. I'm like, yeah, take a look here at how this works. And I, now that I think about it, I don't know if that is actually technically a, a Pete Dyeism. Well, it's a flat golf course. Um, uh, we obviously have basins to uh, pick up drainage because of the site was not a, not a very good quality type of material that the golf course was um, built on. Um, so it does have some subtle movement, uh, but that's only to get the water off. But the visual intimidation, there's, there's so much eye candy out there, and in particular in the very beginning because it was a single-row irrigation system uh, when the golf course opened. So the fringes became pretty rough. It was rustic-looking, um, somewhat unkempt. Uh, you missed the fairways, and you you were going to pay the price, whereas today it's a little more of a parkland feel today uh, with more irrigated turf, more uh, more wider uh, areas. So um, um, that has changed over the years as well. Um, the edges are a little softer, uh, but there is plenty of visual intimidation. There, I mean, you kind of have to keep both hands on the wheel throughout the round. And what I, like, what I really have always liked about the golf course is uh, it doesn't favor – one particular player hitting it left to right or right to left. I mean, you're going to get exposed at some point during the round if you only hit it left to right or right to left because the golf course demands that you're going to have to turn the ball both directions. And um, and the golf course has great variety. And um, um, we've added some length over the years. And frankly, there's probably a few more holes that could have a little more length added yet today. Um, that I'm sure the tour will be looking at uh, into the future. I think it's a great test of golf. I really, really enjoy playing it. I know some high handicappers don't necessarily enjoy enjoy playing it. Uh, at, or I've been told it's my low handicap privilege that I really like that golf course. But I, I, I think it's a, a fascinating place to play. What, what would I, I hate to ask this question in such a basic way? It's I, I, we could spend ten hours probably talking about what you learned from Pete Dye. But I was just curious as to you know. You, you've touched on a couple of them already. Where's the water going off the golf course? How to drain a golf course and stuff. But I'm wondering as to what you think the most interesting uh, things that kind of made you, when you learned them, go, huh, that, that you learned from Pete Dye along the years. He was never totally satisfied. He thought that every time he made a change to a feature that it was making the golf hole better. And more often than not, he was absolutely correct. So he was never afraid of getting a hole almost ready to grass, or even if it was grassed, he he was not opposed to coming back in and changing. He he was uh, such a perfectionist that um, he was constantly shaping and molding in the field, drawing with his bulldozer and sketching in the dirt and the sand of what he was trying to do and creating these angles uh, is really what he was so focused on. He was so driven and focused by the angles um, uh, of of each and every golf hole. And um, the stadium course is a beautiful example of that. And uh, I think it was that, that relentless pursuit of of changing it, of reshaping and, and molding until he got it just to fit his eye. And that was one of the great takeaways for me. Um, and then, you know, the fact that we would be working 12 and 14-hour days every day, not just four or five days, every day working 12 and 14 hours, and he would make it fun. Hmm. I mean, you were enjoying being out there doing physical labor, driving equipment, operating equipment, and whether it be raking and shoveling or in, down in a trench with um, drain pipe, uh, it didn't really matter. He was so driven until he just motivated everybody on site. And guess what? Along the way, we all had fun. We had fun doing it. Uh, and, and I've never really run across anybody that quite had those those traits that could um, invigorate, you know, a crew and all the crews that, you know, you have 40, 50, 60 people working on a golf course. You have irrigation crews, you have drainage crews, you have shaping, you have guys that are shaping, you've got laborers, you've got people that are, that are laying sod. And I mean, it's just, 
you know, uh, there's just so much going on, and he's the conductor out there, mm-hmm. you know, with the orchestra and just, you know, just making it all happen and uh, and enjoying it and working just as hard as anybody else. Mm. Did you work with him at Kiowa? I was not at Kiowa. Jason McCoy was working up at Kiowa with Pete on the Ocean Course. I went up and visited a number of times with him at Kiowa. Uh, a lot of that project occurred and was rebuilt along the way during and after Hurricane Hugo. Right. Just a great, great golf course. Great piece of property. Very challenging, obviously, with the wind up there. I was up there for the uh, 91 Ryder Cup and also was up there for the PGA when McElroy just drove the ball better than anybody I've ever seen, hmm. hit it off the tee. Hmm. Uh, well, I, I teased this, and I, I forgot to come back to it, I guess, with your work with the PGA Tour after the after Sawgrass kind of – can you talk a little bit about some of the uh, the, the the following projects and in the initiative of, of the TPC network? Yes, I'm sorry, I, I kind of got off on a tangent <laughs> there as well. Dean Beeman was really the creator of the Tournament Players Club network as the commissioner, and uh, I was also fortunate. sorry to stop you there. But what what is the Tournament Players Club network? You know, I, I know it's evolved some over the years, but what was the mission? I guess I think the mission early on was to build uh, golf courses that had to host an event, a PJ Tour event. Initially, it was a PJ Tour event, and then it evolved into a Champions Tour event, if need be. But um, it was a set of clubs that would create and generate revenue uh, for the PJ Tour. It was a, I think it was a for-profit aspect of the, of the overall PJ Tour umbrella. Uh, it's been wildly successful from a financial standpoint. But early on, um, the mission was to build tournament-related golf courses that were wired for television early on, had all the right plumbing to host an event. It had television pads. It had hospitality areas built and designed into the concept uh, along with the golf course and to move spectators around and and to be spectator-friendly. And the Tournament Players Club at Sawgrass was obviously the first one. And then we were involved in uh, growing that network and that concept. And um, we made our share of mistakes um, because it was a new concept, but it was quite innovative. You know, it was all initiated by Commissioner Beeman, who just had a fantastic business mind and took the tour to new heights that no one had ever seen or dreamed of. The tournament player clubs today, I'm not sure how many they are, but a couple of them have been sold, and, and uh, I've, been, I've been out of there for a number of years. But um, I was involved early on uh, with the concept. It was very exciting. Uh, and then we, um, we started using other architects, and we engaged um, PJ Tour players as player consultants to be involved as well so they would have a say. Uh, and some were more involved than others. I think I probably worked with about 17 or 18 tour pros over the course of my tenure there, which was really great. It allowed me to rub elbows with um, some of the greatest players in the game, both modern day and, and from another era. That was excellent um, experience for me. I've got Sam Snead, Gene Sarazen, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Raymond Floyd, and Chichi Rodriguez as all players you worked with. Just a few to, yeah, pretty, pretty good. Spanning group. some generations too. Yeah, yeah. No, no question. And I tell you, they all were, were just great in in so many respects. I mean, you know, somebody said describe Sam Snead, and uh, my immediate my immediate comment was he's the oldest teenager I ever met. <laughs> and it was great being around Jack. It was great being around Arnold and. Um, and Gary Player and Raymond Floyd and Jerry Pate, Chi-Chi, uh, Fuzzy Zeller, uh, just so many, so many great, great players that, you know, just had, you know, shared so many common interests and, uh, about the game. And some were more involved than others uh, from a design standpoint and input. Two of the guys that were player consultants that I worked with at River Highlands um, included Roger Maltby and Howard Twitty. And uh, they were very involved. They were they were really into they were really into it. They wanted to know everything that we were doing, and um, they were uh, they were involved in a lot of the strategy of some of the golf holes and some of the bunkering. And they had they had good input, very good input. I guess I find it somewhat tying in a lot of things we're talking about is here. We t- we're we're talking about tournament specific golf courses that were really built. Most of them built 
in an era before the distance real boom of the early 2000s. So I, I just find it a little bit ironic of, you know, we're talking about building these new golf courses for tour pros, but I feel like this was kind of the initiative of this in, in the beginning several decades ago. Well, a lot of those golf courses have been renovated yeah. and remodeled and upgraded and greatly lengthened. Grasses have changed. Uh, grass types have changed. We've gone from bent grass to Bermuda grass on a couple of golf courses. We've changed them out, uh, and we've added length to a lot of those golf courses. Uh, you know, the tour has a shot link data, which is incredibly valuable. So uh, uh, you can use a lot of that information to help upgrade some of these golf courses. Uh, and, you know, rethinking the, the bunker strategy, not only in the fairways but around the greens. I mean, they, they have such stats today that, you know, a lot of times they can get out of the bunker. They're, they have a higher up and down percentage getting out of the bunkers than they do from around the greens on shortcut. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, when you're going to the bunker, typically, you know, if it's a normal bunker shot, they're hitting a 58 or 60, 62 degree wedge, whereas uh, you miss the green and uh, you're down in a hollow, then you may have three or four choices on getting it up and down. And if you if you don't make the right decision and you don't get it up and down, there's that mental aspect that I think has been missing a little bit. And, uh, you know, we were, we've taken out bunkers sometimes in instances around greens as well, just to add a little, little more variety as far as uh, players, you know, trying to get it up and down around greens instead of just flanking greens with bunkers. Yeah. That's not necessarily good strategy. Well, it's, it's uh, you know, I, one thing I hear sometimes on the PGA Tour uh, that I never, ever, ever hear during the British Open is after a player hits a shot, get in the bunker. No one ever says that. And I'm, always, I'm just amazed, and I'm, I, I'm sure you've got a million reasons as to why this is the case, why it seems like you do everything, in, in Lynx golf, you do everything you possibly can to avoid these, these traps. And in a lot of U.S. golf and PGA Tour golf, you, don't, you aren't necessarily trying to avoid the bunkers you know, I, a lot of it has to do with the aerial aspect of the game and the, and the running aspect of Lynx golf, but they don't. Uh, Mirfield Village is the one place I think of where they've really deepened the bunkers to make it very, very difficult to get up and down. Um, but otherwise, it just doesn't seem like I, I see pros with really, really difficult bunker shots very often. Uh, you know, I'll, you're right. Bunkers have evolved tremendously. And um, I hear superintendents talk sometimes that they spend more man hours maintaining bunkers than they do their greens I find that's a little i have a problem with that <laughs> um clubs want their bunkers to be all consistent you know how do we get our bunkers 100 percent consistent and i'm like well that's that's really impossible because you have north facing bunkers south facing bunkers bunkers that have more play than others and more often they have more sand than others but there's a level of consistency that has americanized our bunkers to the point where that's not the case when you go to the British Isles. They don't maintain them to the same standard, but they're, they're still hazards. At the end of the day, they're hazards, and they play as hazards. Uh, while over here, for a tour event, they may rake the bunkers toward the pin and uh, not, into, not, not toward you, not, not the grain coming into you is going with you, which obviously makes a bunker shot a little different to play. There's a lot of factors that go in to the bunkers versus some of the bunkers that you get into uh, in so many other parts of the world. Uh, you certainly don't hear them saying that very often in, uh, in St. Andrews and, and some of the other British hmm. Open uh, rotation courses that they play during the Open. But over here, yeah, you hear that comment quite often about get in the bunker, get in the bunker. And it may be because there's too much rough or a yeah. lot of rough. And, you know, if you got a lot of rough around a, around a green and around a bunker, then obviously more predictable to be in the bunker than in the rough. Well, I want to talk to you a bit uh, about a couple of uh, renovations that you've done. First one being Medalist. Uh, I'm wondering if you can take us kind of through the timeline uh, of Medalist, what you did there initially, what, who, like the, uh, the initial structure of Medalist, when you did work there, and kind of tell the story of, the, of that place. Uh, Pete did the golf course in 95. Greg Norman was a founder and ultimately became a uh, on the architect team, co-architect. Uh, but Pete routed and designed the golf course and built the golf course. And, and Greg kind of cut his teeth, I think, there. I wasn't, I wasn't there. I was down there some during construction. The golf course went through a lot of changes from 95 until I got there in 2015. It had a little different look. The membership wanted it to 
maybe go back a little more towards Pete. And um, I had a couple of discussions and meetings with Pete. Pete said, you go up there and make the changes. Uh, he said, I'll check in and, and um, stay in touch with you on it. So I had all the shell matches that um, Greg and Nick Price had played uh, when the courts first opened in 95. So Alice and Pete had copies of those, and they gave them to me. And um, I lived on site during the job, and um, I would just pour over those those old um, shell match uh, on every hole. They had great aerials and showed all the golf holes. And the original golf course had all sidewall bunkers, natural sidewall bunkers. Over the years, most of the greens that were down on the ground had been renovated, and some were up in the air. Bunkers that were on the inside of the dog leg had been altered. A lot of changes to the golf holes. So I was able to go back and um, restore the golf course to a greater degree uh, than most and take it back to what they what they really started with and then obviously added some yardage and made some other additions to the golf course. And uh, it was... Including the Tiger Tees. Yeah, we put in some Tiger Tees. Who'd you work with on that? <laughs> uh, that was fun. Yeah. Um, we added a number of, of Tiger Tees with Tiger's assistance. And, um, and I think there's probably 25 plus or minus tour pros that are members there in that Jupiter area. Um, and they all played at Medalist because it's a just a great club, great membership. Houses only on one or two golf holes, and they're set back, and you don't really see them. So uh, um, a lot of wildlife, plenty of room. Players can really drive their ball out there. And um, the golf course, had, we added quite a bit of yardage. And uh, I think we're stretched out to probably 7,600-plus yards. You know, all the greens are pretty much down. And just a very, very playable golf course. Very little rough. Pretty much just step cut and just immaculate conditioned. Um, Jason Jobson's a superintendent. And uh, on a day-to-day basis, they're, they're just a touch away from hosting an event mm-hmm. at any time. And um, so – Players really like that when they come home and live in that area to come out and be able to play a golf course that highly conditioned and well-conditioned on a day-to-day basis and um, to be able to go out and practice and, and put on those greens with that kind of speed. Um, they, don't, you know, they don't miss a beat when they go out on tour and play the tour courses. So uh, uh, it sets up great for the, the tour players. That's where I first met MJ and um, the membership, uh, very discerning membership. They give those tour pros the same treatment as each other. Everybody's treated pretty equally there. Everybody goes about their business. It's just a great club. Did that in 2016, I believe. We didn't replace the bunkers with the natural side. We used the new eco bunker um, artificial surface, and uh, it just has an amazing, amazing look to it and will stand up so much better and longer. Um, so that really added a nice element to the golf course along the way. I was surprised. I, I, I didn't know what to expect before I played it, but I thought it would be a lot more penal. I didn't know it was going to be that wide, and there was that much kind of nuance to that. Like the 10th the hole is the one I, I come back on. Is you know I played way up the left on that par four and had a terrible angle into the hole, and the risk is play down the right closer to the hazard, and you'll have a good look at the pin and everything. And that, that kind of charting exercise is something that – uh, I, I thought was really, really fantastic. Um, another one I want to talk about, maybe this one's a little bit selfish because I've been looking at the construction in, in my backyard of, a, of our condo for the last year, but Ponte Vedra Inn and Club. But I, the reason I want to ask about that is, you, so you recently just redid the ocean course, a course that you've, you have renovated before in the past. What's it like to renovate a course that you have already renovated? And, I, and I'm coming at that as term, in terms of how you evolve over the years as as an architect, what you learn, what you come back at and see differently, you know, several years later. Everybody likes a mulligan. <laughs> so it's, it was a little bit of a mulligan for me because I redid the golf course in 98. It was originally a 1928 Herbert Strong Englishman um, who did a number of other fine courses uh, on, his, uh, on his own here in the States. Um, Engineers Club in New York comes to mind. The golf course was written up as one of the three hardest in the United States uh, hmm. back in the day, was actually slated to host the 1939 Ryder Cup that was ultimately canceled due to World War II. And then uh, Trent Jones came in, uh, 50s, I believe, mid-50s, and renovated the golf course and made a lot of changes. The golf course is, has, a, has a north-south routing hard up against the Atlantic Ocean. Um, the wind is certainly the biggest ally 
uh, of the golf course. And I renovated it in 96, <laughs> stepped on the gas pretty good. It, it had quite a bit. The greens had a lot of movement, and um, uh, the features were big and bold. Uh, a lot of the greens that Jones had elevated, I left intact, maybe some more than others. In this past year, 2020 here that we're in, we just finished and just reopened the course. What, 22 years later, I took the liberty of softening some of the greens, taking some of the contour out, mainly because the speeds are so much faster today. Right. I, you just couldn't accommodate those speeds uh, in the past. And we lowered a number of the green complexes. We lowered them down a little bit to bring in the surrounds to make them a little more playable. Being hard up against the ocean, we we uh, we did some turf reduction and put in some shell screenings uh, for contrast and for ease of playability, I think. And we really don't have much rough on the golf course. It's really big, wide, spacious fairways and uh, step cut. And uh, uh, I think um, the opening weekend, we had a big nor'eastern in the wind blew <laughs> for like six days in a row. And it was unbelievable. Brutal. Yeah. It was brutal. I'm sure everybody struggled. but uh, It was blowing in the direction of our place, which oh, is yeah. right off the tee of, or not off the tee, but where the, a left ball is going to hit off 10 tees. <laughs> you may have had a little action over We there. experienced a little bit of that. But, uh, but uh, the golf course has been very well received, and uh, we changed out all the grasses, introduced some new grasses, some new um, advanced varieties of turf grass, great visual sight lines. I planted a lot of oak trees um, throughout the property to uh, mimic an old maritime forest because that's what was here before some of the mining back in the 20s. Tells you how old I'm getting because those are pretty big trees today. <laughs> um, I tell my kids that um, I have three daughters and um, I take them out there and I'm like, yeah, your dad planted all these trees. And I know all they can think about is, wow, dad, you're pretty old. <laughs> I know we got to let you go here here shortly, but uh, and we uh, there's no chance. Maybe we'll have to do this again in the future. There's no chance we can get to all these golf courses. But I noticed, noted you did a lot of you've done a lot of Donald Ross work or, or restoration work on Donald Ross courses. Maybe I don't even have the full list of them here: Palatka, Palmasia, Timaquana. What what is it like to do uh, to work on a, a you know a Donald Ross golf course? I imagine across that spectrum, there's, there's varying uh, amounts of information you had about the original golf courses and those projects. Yeah, by the time I by the time I saw these golf courses, there was there was not much Ross left in any of them. Um, they've been renovated three to five times over the years. So I was able to go back and historically look for old files and records. And um, like at Timaquana, it's set right beside a naval air station, and um, I was able to find some old 1940s aerials from the Navy, and uh, they'd overshot some of the uh, properties and it showed the golf course so I was able to enlarge and, and see what struck me early on was the, um, the lack of trees. It was basically a treeless site with a few big clusters of oak trees. And then when I saw the golf course, it was absolutely tree line. And one of the most unique aspects of, of that particular golf course um, was I found three sets of 150 yard markers. I found some juniper trees that were 40 feet tall that were 30 yards back in the woods. <laughs> and then I found some podocarpus and some ligustrum, 150-yard markers. And uh, that just showed you the evolution of how the golf course just kept tightening up as more and more trees were planted because uh, back, in the, back in the 40s, even then, there were very few trees on that golf course. And uh, that just shows you how golf courses evolve over time. But um, we were able to go back and um, – um, really rebuild that golf course. And, you know, one item that you don't see much today is quirky. I think quirky has fallen out of favor. And um, I, I think quirky is still good. I think we should have more quirky features out on golf courses. And quirky can be good. Well, it's got to just be hard. Going back to what we talked about in the very beginning about convincing owners or whatnot, it, it seems like quirky back in the day was just kind of the way of, you know, there wasn't any template of, of how a golf course should look. And so you could do quirky and you didn't really know it was quirky at the time. But now, how hard is it to get away with doing something quirky? Because I feel like a lot of today's golfer is conditioned to not like blind shots, to not like, you know, a 240-yard par four or something like that. Or, you know, how hard is it? Do you find that challenge? 
Well, I just keep going back over and seeing uh, a lot of great courses in the British Isles, and there's still a lot of great golf courses here in America that have a lot of quirkiness and, and blindness and up and down and funky features in and around greens and, and bunkers that are not normal to most players, even yardages of golf holes. You know, we had we had a lot of fun shaping and molding that golf course in the field, and um, and same thing at at Palmacia. Down in Tampa and South Tampa, that golf course had been changed so many times, and it's on a very small piece of property. And a very lot, small. lot of oak trees have been planted over the years. You really can't play that golf course without, you know, having to play out of oak out from underneath an oak tree or around a tree at some point. Again, you know, it's not a really overly long golf course, and the corridors are pretty tight. But it works. It works. It's a great country club, and uh, it's a fantastic membership. And then you go to Palaka, and it was a 20s uh, raw-style golf course, and the greens are about as big as your table right here, and um, they just slope off. And But it's the most fun playing golf course. I think from the tips, it may be 6,000 yards, yeah. par 70. And uh, they have a couple of amateur events there. They play the Azalea Amateur there. And the they, Florida Azalea. They give they give a lot of um, Walker Cup points, and um, so you get all these college kids coming in there, and they just they just lick their chops, and they're just going to blister it and shoot fifty nine, fifty eight. Well, no, it, the golf course just eats them up because you got a lot of hard pan around the greens, and and these kids, a lot of rub of the green. I played in, the, in this year's event. Yeah, actually. these kids don't play off hard pan very often, <laughs> yeah. and um, to hit these little bump and runs to these elevated greens um, is very difficult. But you know, the locals play the golf course in three hours. You don't really lose any golf balls. You may lose one ball or two. But uh, for the most part, you can keep the ball in play. It's very short. And then they have a great senior event, and they get the best field. They yeah. get one of the best fields in the country for the senior event. So these old golf courses, to restore, renovate these old golf courses and to bring back some of those quirky features is something we need to continue to to uh, to make sure that we don't lose. I know after after playing that event this year, I immediately came back to the guys. I was like, all right, we got to go down there and shoot a video because I, I I didn't get even close to enough of that course playing it uh, over the course of an entire week. I wanted I wanted more of it. I felt like I was so close to cracking it, and I never got to crack it. Yeah, so. and you can hit uh, you can hit every club in your bag. Oh yeah, and they have a game down there. Like if you can hit all, I think they have five par threes, and the bet is you know you get to win a dozen balls if you hit all par three, all, <laughs> all of the par three greens, which is not easy to do because they're very small and they've only gotten smaller. Right, and that tenth hole is one of the wildest golf holes. It's a true throwback golf hole in terms of distance the balls used to go and how much that used to make sense versus now it's. Snap hook a three wood or that ball is going out of bounds. It's kind of crazy. Exactly. So, all right. Well, I got to let you go. We will have to do this again sometime because there's still plenty I'd love to unpack with you. But thanks for coming coming over to the house and uh, and doing this and look forward to doing it again sometime. Sure. Anytime. Love it. Thank Cheers. You. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect 